I think when you study the Mahabharata academically, it can be easy to come at it from, I don't know, like a hardcore sort of philological perspective. And this way of of doing it, this way into the Mahabharata and the Mahabharata tradition has been so refreshing in that way to begin from a place of how do we tell this story? How do we bring it to life? What what do we want to explore? What is personally relevant to us? What's artistically relevant to us? It's a completely different way in, and it's been amazing to sort of meet some of the same themes. You know, you can you can study these things all day long, and it's amazing, but you know, we're never going to know what it was like to put on a production of you know a scene from the Mahabharata in the seventh century. But we can see it now. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Speaking of Indian Arts, the Mahabharata series, hosted by Navatman. In this series, we go behind the scenes with the Navatman team as they research, write, compose, choreograph, style, and bring to life a groundbreaking multi-year production of the largest epic in the world, the Mahabharata. My name is Anjali, and I'll be your host for this conversation. When you hear others say that they know the Mahabharata, what exactly do they mean? Oftentimes, they'll say they study the Gita. But the Gita constitutes just 0.7% of the entire Sanskrit Mahabharata. Perhaps they'll say they recognize its mythology from religious allegory and use the story to imbibe Hindu concepts like dharma. But dharma is a concept that has become core to many religions like Sikhism, Jainism, and Buddhism, and others. The concept also exists separately from and outside of religion. People may recognize character names, famous episodes, or trappings of the plot, but the true depth of the Mahabharata is almost unfathomable. Realizing that depth starts with acknowledging that The Mahabharata, in fact, isn't one entity. It is a product of a spectacular, long-lived diversity of cultural voices and interpretations. To navigate and comprehend the Mahabharata while staying true to its retellings, today we sit down with Nell Shapiro-Holly and Sohini Sarah Pillay, the academic experts working in partnership with Navatman to distill Mahabharata philosophy and bring it to life through the arts. Thanks so much for having us, Anjali. Uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast and to be talking about the Mahabharata. My name is Nell shapiro Holly, and I am the preceptor in Sanskrit at Harvard University, and I am also a PhD candidate in South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. My primary academic interest, and frankly, non-academic interest, my primary personal interest in life is the Mahabharata. And I study mostly the Sanskrit epic Mahabharata and its early iterations in Sanskrit poetry and drama. So Sanskrit retellings of the Mahabharata Um, in drama, in poetry, over the course of the first millennium. 
with Sony, we've been editing this um, amazing uh, volume called Many Mahabharatas, which just came out from Sunni Press. Hi again, Anjali. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm Sohini Sarah Pillay. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies. Like Nell, uh, my primary academic interest is the Mahabharata tradition, uh, specifically retellings of the Mahabharata that were composed in Tamil and in Hindi. But I'm also deeply interested in uh, regional and vernacular retellings of the Mahabharata. Nearly every you know, South Asian literary culture has multiple retellings of the Mahabharata that were composed you know, between 800 and 1800 CE. And of course, we have many modern uh, regional retellings of the Mahabharata as well, but my, my focus is kind of just, you know, those thousand year, that thousand year period, um, <laughs> and regional and vernacular retellings. I am the lucky one to have such a wealth of knowledge and such breadth of knowledge on this podcast. So thanks to you guys for being here. I'm curious about how you got connected to Navatman and what is the what has your role been so far in the development of Navatman's Mahabharata? Some months ago, I got um, an email totally out of the blue from from Sahi, who told me over email that she was that she was working to really orchestrate much of Navatman's production of um, of the Mahabharata. And did I want to? Was I interested in being a part of it and and contributing um, some insights from the sort of academic? study of the Mahabharata. Uh, and of course I said yes and immediately wrote to Sohini and was like, we have to do this together. And then it turned out that Sohini like knew folks from the Navatman team already. Yeah. Um, I, I was really excited to hear about this. Um, one of my closest childhood friends who I've known since I was we met in middle school over our shared love of Shah Rukh Khan at the time. Um, her name is Shachi Fene, and she's actually the founder of the Newer Dance Academy, also in New York City. But she was in the Ramayana production that Navatman did. To hear that Navatman was doing a Mahabharata show, we were, Nell and I were both just so excited, and especially because it was a, a production team that we were, that at least I was familiar with, and um, and I told Nell about it. We got we were just so excited to be a part of this. And so you asked us a bit about what our role has been with Navatman. So um, it's really fun. It's kind of like Friday share time, basically. Uh, we talk for an hour, I think, every Friday, every other Friday. Um, and, you know, Sahi sends us some questions. Sometimes they're a little bit difficult to talk about in one hour. So, like, sometimes Sahi will say, like, what does Dharma actually mean in the Mahabharata? And Nell and I will just look at each other with like really wide eyes being like oh my goodness how can we but the big questions are the good questions so it's based and then we also meet with um Lavanya who is working on on the script and um Samyukta is also there who's doing the music for the production and it's just a really fun you know hour every other week where we get to just I think it's now, and it's our dream, right? Now we just get to talk about the Mahabharata for an hour, you know, because we spend all the time either teaching or writing or working on the Mahabharata. And to engage with the Mahabharata in this kind of performance studies context is really exciting. You have 
seen countless retellings of the Mahabharata and such a myriad of ways of conveying the story, portraying the story. What does it mean to see a performance like this come together now in this moment? For me, what I've been struck by is that you know the Mahabharata, as you know, has been retold countless times in, in countless genres and countless languages, right? But what I'm thinking about now, sort of in the context of Novotman's production, is that, you know, the Mahabharata is a work about crisis. It's a, it's, it tells the story of a catastrophic fratricidal war that ends a cosmic era and ushers in an extremely dark one. And it is full of moral gray areas and there are no happy endings. There may not even be any endings at all. Many Mahabharatas over time and in different, again, in different genres and languages have come back to this theme of crisis and dilemma and decay and disintegration. And I think that now in the 21st century, amid the COVID pandemic and amid our crumbling democratic infrastructure politically, I'm thinking about the crisis in India right now. I'm thinking about climate change. I think that in many ways, like Novotman's production could not have come at a better time because it's at these dark times when we turn to the Mahabharata, not for answers, definitely not for answers, but for ways of ways of looking, ways of opening up our perspective, questions to ask, ways of empathizing. So I, I'm struck by the timing of this production. And that's to me, that's why this has been particularly like meaningful to be involved with at this moment. And also just as a native New Yorker, it's, it's wonder. I, I, I'm so like, I'm so glad to see the Mahabharata sort of come to come to life on the streets of my city. Um, because the Mahabharata, because everyone has, you know, their own local Mahabharata. And, and for, and, and it's so important for a Mahabharata to be local in some ways. I mean, it's a universal sort of cosmological story, of course, but, but it's also localized. And so I love the idea of the Mahabharata coming, coming to my home and me having my own local Mahabharata in my own language, in English. It's, it's, it really matters to me, but I want to hear what Sohini has to say. I mean, I I was thinking similarly now, just, um, so I grew up in, in Boston and, you know, every kind of holiday season, my parents and I would go to New York to see a big Broadway production. And it's just so special that um, that Navatman is doing this, you know, big kind of Broadway style Mahabharata, which is really exciting. Um, and especially, you know, just given what's happening in our country right now, and, you know, as an Indian American, seeing what's happening around us, um, especially, you know, I'm just thinking about the recent um, shootings in Indianapolis at the FedEx facility. And, you know, 
until that moment, I think a lot of us were thinking, you know, oh, South Asians were Asian Americans too, but this violence we're seeing is really against um, East Asian Americans and Southeast Asian Americans. And then um, having that just happen so recently has been kind of um, eye-opening, I think, for a lot of members of the Asian American community about, you know, including uh, specifically Sikh Americans within the Asian American community when we talk about it as a larger whole. But it's so special to see this performance that is being um, kind of organized and performed by many South Asian Americans as well. And that this is a, this is a South Asian American kind of creation is it's an, as an Indian American, that's really important and special to me. And then, you know, seeing it in New York, this is also where I, I went for my master's program and it's, you know, now grew up there. It's just, it's special for both of us. Um, it's, that it's in this city and that this production is happening. For all of the scholarship and discussion around the uh, localized versions of the Mahabharata that have been created over his in history and the regional variation and regional nuance, this is essentially added to that canon, if that's right. We're, yeah. like, we're kind of writing of ourselves course. into that whole tradition. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful because, it, I mean, it's every part of that is unique to the right, the South Asian community in, in New York specifically, so a community that's so internally so diverse. Right. To have that internal diversity represented in this production, but by telling this story that is in many ways like all of our stories and the sort of story of the human experience. And like you're saying, so much diversity within the South Asian community and even within the art form. You have so many kind of circles within Indian classical arts, whether it's Carnatic or Hindustani. In some ways, it's kind of breaking down those barriers within the performing arts, but still operating within the diversity of the Asian South Asian community. Many people uh, know the, if I can say, the brand, the Mahabharata, but maybe are not as aware of the fact that there are, um, of course, multiple retellings, various manifestations of the idea of the Mahabharata or the story. So what I'm wondering if you could do is take us through a theme or maybe a couple of different themes that people commonly associate with the Mahabharata that aren't in fact as cut and dry as people might think. Could you sort of illustrate for us how this theme may show up in different ways or like with different priorities in various retellings and then how it sort of challenges our assumptions about the Mahabharata story? (laughs) It's so... This is such a big and wonderful question. Um, two two big themes that have come up in our conversations with with the Novotman creative team have been dharma and caste, and both. And you mentioned both of those when we were organizing this podcast, and I think that was a good place to start um, because those uh, those really are big things that that the Novotman production is is bringing to light. So I think I'd like to start there. With with the huge question of dharma, um, a lot of folks rightly point out that if the if the Mahabharata, and by this I mean the Sanskrit Mahabharata, if the Sanskrit Mahabharata is about anything, it's sort of about this dharma, uh, the question of what is dharma? And, and this is a question that is never answered. And that... The idea that dharma would be debated would be a subject of intense dilemma, 
and controversy, the idea that there would be different, that different characters would advance different ideas about what dharma is at different times, sometimes in order to get what they want, rather than maybe in order to uh, lay out what they really think the sort of uh, philosophical or ethical lay of the land is. The Mahabharata in Sanskrit is intensely polyperspectival. You never get a single view on anything. Instead, even the parts that you think are long discourses on concepts like dharma, uh, what, what one should do at different times, how one should conduct oneself, or what is fate, um, how are things decided for us, what, what, what do divinities want of us, even when one character or another is going on and on about such things, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Mahabharata authorial voice is coming down hard on one side or another. Rather, each character who's saying these things has a background and a context and a history and a personality. These are things that are possible to bring out in productions. Who are these characters? making these comments about what dharma is. What's at stake for them in that moment in saying dharma is this or that? And so in the Mahabharata, you have, in the Sanskrit Mahabharata, I should say, you have many different figures giving many different accounts at different times of the concept of dharma and or how people should conduct themselves in different contexts. And that, and I find that at least over the course of the many Mahabharata tellings in different languages, that sort of question of how do we understand dharma, it ha- has, has been a major point of focus, largely because there is no straight answer in the Mahabharata. I mean, if you had a straight answer, you would need to investigate it in, in future tellings, right? Well, what would there be? But sure enough, over the course of the first millennium, you have Sanskrit dramas that feature characters like Bhima breaking the thighs of Duryodhana during the mace fight and being told to, to do that. And other characters like Balarama, his mace teacher, coming along and saying, this is not Dharma, what are you doing? And then Bhima doing it anyway. And the idea of, you know, to what extent is this dharma? To what, what extent is it not? Why is dharma a useful or not useful category here? What is, what is it, again, what is at stake for these characters? Why are they having this argument? What are they using the concept of dharma to come, to get across? And then you, and, and you have that in other languages. In the book, um, many Mahabharatas, we have a really great chapter by, um, a scholar named Timothy Lorndale, who talks about a uh, Kannada retelling, an old Kannada retelling of the Mahabharata. This is from, you know, the turn of the second millennium, like a thousand years ago, where you have the character of Duryodhana totally critiquing the Pandavas and saying, 
they they never follow, follow kshatriya dharma look they do this they do that they kill their teachers they um they don't fight fair you know five of them are married to the same woman this is this is not how warriors are supposed to behave and in doing that you you have a a very interesting early classical kannada text that is really giving voice to the character of duryodhana's concept of what constitutes dharma for him and just you know to fast forward like another thousand years um, sometimes you have these sort of almost like triumphalist pro pandava like oh the the mahabharata is about the battle of good and evil and the pandavas are good and the karvas are evil and the pandavas won because they followed dharma right and so that's another understanding of what is dharma in the mahabharata it's a really really simplified one at least when it comes to you know comparing it with earlier understandings but um but that's certainly one way to read it and then and then you also have modern tellings of the mahabharata that are of course hyper um critical of dharma as a category whom, whom does the idea of dharma serve does it serve certain castes over others does it serve certain groups over others um how has the idea of dharma been sort of appropriated or misappropriated you know and that too i think actually those those highly critical those modern highly critical readings of uh, of the issue of dharma through the lens of the mahabharata in many ways they reflect the sanskrit mahabharata itself and much earlier tellings much earlier much more complicated understandings of what is the question of dharma really doing here who is it helping why do we use it why do we invoke it astounding complexity is that of Krishna himself. Who really is this Krishna? How do we make sense of his presence in the Mahabharata and how his various roles in the different retellings are either shaped by or shape cultural interpretations? The Krishna of the Mahabharata is an enigmatic and very complicated figure, right? And I think this was kind of made clear to me a few years ago when I was um, TAing a course on Hindu mythology and I, I uh, was meeting with a student. And I think, you know, for when you ask many Hindus and uh, Hindu Americans about Krishna, they think of the little boy who is going and stealing butter from his mom and eating curds or the teenager who's stealing the clothes of the gopis of the milkmaids right or who is you know dancing on top of snake demons and lifting up mountains and doing all of these things in this very you know pastoral kind of atmosphere right and and i had this student and we were talking about the sanskrit mahabharata and she's like where is that krishna in the Sanskrit Mahabharata. And I was like, oh, well, you know, sometimes they refer to him by names like Gopala, which, you know, he's, you know, refers to his identity as a cowherd or Govinda, or there'll be like a reference that, you know, he, as a child, um, he killed Putana, this demoness who came to kill him by 
um, putting poison on her breast and nursing him. But that kind of childhood trickster, you certainly get a trickster Mahabharata, Krishna in the Mahabharata, but that childhood young Krishna, who many Hindus, when they think of Krishna, that's who they think of, right? Krishna playing the flute. We don't really see that Krishna in the Sanskrit Mahabharata. And, and I just remember the student being like, what? Where is he? Where is that Krishna? And I, I was just not there. He's not, he's not here in the Sanskrit Mahabharata. Sorry. In the Sanskrit Mahabharata, we get an adult diplomat, counselor Krishna, who's giving kind of sketchy and strange advice. Is he telling the Pandavas to go to war with their cousins? Is he trying to prevent the war? And then during the war, he does all of this sketchy stuff, telling Yudhishthira, you know, when they're trying to kill Drona, lie and tell Drona that his son has been killed. Um, we see him, you know, just doing all sorts of really, again, <laughs> sorry to use the word sketchy, but it's true. It, and it's just, it's morally ambiguous advice. We see Krishna um, giving the Pandavas throughout the epic. And we're like, is he trying to keep them alive? Or is he just trying to drive everyone towards this kind of apocalyptic doom, right? Um, but it's interesting because, and I don't blame my student for asking this, because this student grew up with um, B.R. Chopra's Hindi Mahabharata TV serial that was on Doordarshan um, in India. I think many of us grew up with the DVDs and the VHS tapes, right, seeing it. And there's a whole episode, I think it's like the eighth or the ninth episode, right after the Pandavas' childhood, you have an episode about Krishna's childhood. And these are coming from other, you know, religious narratives, such as the Bhagavata Purana, Harivamsha, a text that's considered an appendix to Mahabharata, but that's complex in its own way, right? Um, and the retellings that I look at, you see, you know, starting around the ninth century in these retellings of the Mahabharata, it's that childhood Krishna who's kind of slowly becoming integrated into different Mahabharata retellings. And it's still the story that you know, but these retellings of the Mahabharata, it's not about how the Pandavas defeated the Kauravas, but often these regional retellings are about how Krishna saved the Pandavas from the Kauravas, which of course happens in the Sanskrit Mahabharata to a certain extent. But the whole, these narratives, these religious regional retellings kind of just completely reframe the as the deeds of Krishna, of how Krishna saved the Pandavas. And the Pandavas are kind of, you know, side characters almost, because it's all about how Krishna rescues them. And it's funny because in the Sanskrit Mahabharata, I like to say this to my students, Krishna is kind of like, it's almost like an item number. I mean, he he comes on briefly, you know, and then suddenly he's gone for huge chunks of the text. And then he's back again for a little bit. And then, you know, the war, he's there, but then he disappears again. Then he dies. Then we see him again in heaven, and it's and again it's a text where we see Krishna die. It's it's and it's such a tragic way he goes. Right, his whole family, his whole clan, kill each other, and he's killed by a hunter who thought his foot is the ear of a deer. It's just it's so tragic and horrible, and um, it's Krishna in the Sanskrit Mahabharata. Again, he's just like confounding, confusing character, but. You know, when he becomes this more popular deity throughout South Asia, we see these different kind of retellings of the Mahabharata that focus on him. Um, and just another point to what Nell was saying about, you know, different kinds of Hindu traditions we see within the Mahabharata, even something like the, the Bhagavad Gita can be seen as a response to the growing um, kind of influence of Buddhism in South Asia at the time, right? The whole, the Bhagavad Gita 
is basically Krishna telling Arjuna, man up and kill everyone in your family, right? Like, do this. Engage in violence. Kill your family. And what, what is Buddhism saying at the time? Nonviolence is the way to go, right? But then you see this Gita for, you know, 700 verses. It's Krishna convincing Arjuna to go kill his family members. And that's his duty as a warrior. So it's really interesting to see, even within the Sanskrit Mahabharata, that has now said all these different kind of religious traditions responding to each other, coming into contact with each other within the single text. Yeah. Even, I mean, that scene of the death of Krishna, I think, in the Sanskrit Mahabharata says so much because this is in book 16. Even there, Krishna, and the way it's narrated, Krishna almost has sort of three different deaths, all of which unfold in the same scene. Then there's, of course, the backstory to how all this happens, which is the the drunken brawl of the um, of the Vrishnis and the and the Yadus, and they all get drunk and kill each other. Even there, you see Krishna. You think of Krishna being sort of this like calm character. No, he gets angry and he shoots everybody. I mean, he's like all fine and calm and sort of standing by when it's other people. But then when he sees his own sons dying, he loses it and kills everybody around him and that's it, right? And then Baladama dies, he goes into the ocean. And then Krishna himself has these sort of series of deaths. First, you see that he ha- is has decided that now is his time to go. And so he enters into a yogic state. And this is much as like Drona dies in the Mahabharata. This is a sort of classic way of dying if you are a advanced figure in the in this world like you can choose your own time of death and the way that you do it is by entering into a yogic state and sort of meditating until you die so krishna decides to do that so that's sort of one death that he has is a classic advanced mahabharata warrior death then as sohini was saying there is this utterly strange wonderful mythological like folktale death with this hunter uh who who mistakes him for something else for right he thinks it's a he thinks it's an animal and and shoots him and where does he shoot him he shoots him in the one place on his body that uh he isn't protected this is of course the story of achilles um this is a classic like indo-european folktale hero's death as well then there's the idea that this hunter is actually named Jara, old age. So in some sense, this is the Mahabharata saying that Krishna died of old age. Is it? Who knows? But this is a but but it's one of the ways that the text is sort of playing with our understanding of who is this Krishna? Is he a, a battle hero like any other, like Drona or Bhishma, who's so advanced and can choose his own time of death? Is he a sort of classic, like Indo-European hero, like Achilles, who who dies with a shot to the place that he's least protected? Or is he this mythological folktale figure who dies under overdetermined circumstances, perhaps by old age, but who knows? Does he really die at all? How can we say that Krishna died of old age? Um, so, and he's the only one of the avatars who we ever see die, I believe. Uh, I don't so, cause so any, feel, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I but I, Rama just like ascends up into heaven. I mean, Krishna, even in the modern period, isn't necessarily a divine 
Baker, we have an essay in many Mahabharatas about um, one of you know these really seminal Bengali political thinkers and authors, Bonkin Chandra Chattopadhyay, and you know he doesn't take the Mahabharata as a religious text; he takes it as a historical one, and Krishna being kind of this ideal ruler who we should all emulate, not as a god, but as a as a great king. All of these ideas and characters are constantly evolving and constantly changing. That's amazing. You think you think the Mahabharata is sort of put together every possible sort of unexpected connection between characters. Um, and then when you get to the retellings, you realize how much the Sanskrit Mahabharata in fact left out. And there are so many more backstories and to be told and so many more connections to be made that are then made in, in the retelling. So you were just talking about one of the specific um, essays in or chapters in the book. Let's talk about the book a little bit. Can you give an overview of like, what this is, how you curated this collection. So our our book, Many Mahabharatas, is a collection of 18 essays on tellings of the Mahabharata in, I think, nine or 10 different languages, starting from the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself and going right on up to the 21st century. Three priorities that we had were, one was to bring to light Mahabharatas that had previously not been accessible or discussed either in like academic circles, but also just popularly, right? Um, Mahabharatas in less commonly known and taught languages like Telugu and Kannada, Tamil. We have a wonderful chapter on Jain Mahabharatas. So showing that the Mahabharata is not just a quote unquote Hindu text, but in fact, a, um, a story that that makes its way really powerfully into Jainism um, and into Jain literary history. So, so and those those texts are in often in Upper Pramsha, which is an, an incredible early classical language that bears a, a strong relationship with Sanskrit, but was very much its own thing. So yeah, we have, you know, a, a variety of languages, we have a variety of genres. We really wanted to do performances and graphic novels and political writing and uh, plays, uh, like early plays. And uh, we were, we wanted to do it all. <laughs> Poems. Um, yeah, so sort of like bringing to light less accessible Mahabharatas, emphasizing variety, and also looking at the classics in a new way, right? I mean, so much of the project of of studying the Mahabharata is about looking at a classic in a new way. I mean, that's what makes it a classic, right? It's <laughs> it's accessible. It's it's our story. It's it will never get old. It will always be relevant. So, that's why we start the book with a few chapters about the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself and about the idea of plurality and diversity and a multiplicity of voices in the, the very Sanskrit epic. How does the Sanskrit epic say several things at once? How are these themes of diversity and plurality um, brought to life early, early on in the Mahabharata tradition in the Sanskrit epic itself? And then, that, so that's the first part of the book. And then in the second part of the book, we have a series of chapters about Sanskrit Mahabharata's plural. <laughs> um, Right. And this is where we talk about Sanskrit 
retellings of the Mahabharata. So we think of like the Sanskrit Mahabharata as the epic. No, in fact, there were many more Mahabharatas in Sanskrit. Um, so we have a chapter on a Mahakavya, a, a long, beautiful, ornate Sanskrit poem that retells the story of uh, Krishna killing Shishupala. This is Magha Shishupala Vadha. We have a chapter um, about an early Sanskrit drama that retells the story of the Virata Parvan. We have a chapter about the Mahabharata in Kudiyattam, the Sanskrit, um, the sort of Sanskrit theater of Kerala that is, of course, also Manipravalam and also Malayalam. So already you see that the idea of like Sanskrit Mahabharata is like making its way into other languages, right? Um, and also well beyond the early period. I mean, this essay about Kudiyattam is is about a performance that the author saw like 10 years ago. I mean, it's, you know, you know, the Sanskrit Mahabharata in performance lives on. Right. And, and similarly we had in, again, in this, in this Sanskrit Mahabharata's section, we had a chapter about modern um, productions of Kalidasa's play Shakuntala, some of which were in different languages. Again, there was like some Sanskrit, but there was also Hindi and there was also English. Right. So Sanskrit, you know, Sanskrit Mahabharatas are now no longer just in Sanskrit, but all of these plays Shakunt of these dramas um, that were productions of Kalidasa's Shakuntala looked back not only to Kalidasa's Shakuntala, but also to the Mahabharata's telling of the Shakuntala story. And so too, we see the Sanskrit, you know, Sanskrit Mahabharatas plural is a very like modern thing and has this whole modern life. So that that's the first half of the book. And I'll let Sohini talk about so with the second half of the book, first, uh, the book has four parts, so that parts three and four turn to uh, first regional and vernacular retellings and then modern retellings. Um, but I think it's just especially illustrated in, in the second half of the book that many of the authors of the essays in many Mahabharatas could not just stop and look at one retelling of the Mahabharata, and they had to look at multiple retellings. So uh, in, in this regional Mahabharata section, we start off with, again, this uh, Kannada Mahabharata that Nell was referring to before, composed around the 10th century. But the author, Tim Lorndale, he also compares it to an even earlier Kannada Mahabharata. That's one of the earliest, you know, extant complete retellings of the Mahabharata and also to and to the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So that essay, which is supposedly about this one 10th century Kannada Mahabharata, is really dealing with three different Mahabharatas. And then, and then the next essay, which is about um, the Telugu Mahabharatamu, which is which was composed by three different Telugu poets um, over a span of, you know, maybe multiple centuries, right? And 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 the author there, uh, she's, you know, looking at different sections from by each of these different poets. And again, what is the relationship between the Sanskrit Mahabharata and these Telugu kind of retellings? Or can we use the word translation? She's, you know, dealing with these questions. And, and then afterwards, we have the wonderful essay on, on Jain Apapramsha Mahabharatas. And again, the, it says it's about two Jain Apapramsha Mahabharatas, but I think in the end, it's like four or five different, also Sanskrit Apapramsha Jane retellings. Then that essay about Jane Mahabharata goes really great into um, an essay about a Hindi, the earliest extant Hindi retelling of the Mahabharata, uh, which was composed in a very similar milieu 
to the Jane Mahabharatas that were just being talked about in the chapter before that. And then this author who's talking about this Hindi Mahabharata, she's also looking at a modern Hindi performance of this Mahabharata in Chhattisgarh and comparing it with this Mahabharata from Gwalior, which, you know, is in Madhya. It's just, it's so much is going on. And then maybe I did a good job at sticking to just two Mahabharatas and everyone knows I work with just one Tamil and one Hindi Mahabharata. But, you know, I think in my conclusion, I'm talking about, again, Canada and Hindi and Telugu and all sorts. It was just you brought it in was mind. so hard. Oh, I brought it in <laughs> too. It's just, it's so hard. It's so hard to just talk about one and just, just what's this one idea of the Mahabharata? It's just many Mahabharatas. So I think that section kind of is just like, woo, manyness is kind of the theme of that. And then with the modern section, the final section of the book, I just love it so much because... Each essay is on just such different things. The first two essays are about Bengali interpretations of the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So again, it's you can't avoid the Sanskrit Mahabharata. Even in the early, you know, 20th century, these um, like scholars and political activists were thinking about the Sanskrit Mahabharata and how that related to what they were, the world they were seeing around them. And so again, we have two essays about Bengali political reinterpretations of the Mahabharata, but they're very different from each other. And three kind of really important figures. In the first essay, we have, again, um, Bon Kim, and then we also have Rabindranath Tagore, who, you know, I feel every South Asian person, especially anyone who's Bengali, knows about, and that's in the first essay. And then in the essay after that, we have Buddha Dev Bose, who is another really seminal Bengali kind of political thinker and writer. And then the next essay is by Pamela Lotspeech, uh, and she is looking at three different novels all about Draupadi in three different languages. So we have an Aurea novel set during partition. Super fascinating. Then we, no, excuse me, a Bengali novel set during partition. Then we have an Aurea novel that was written in the 80s called Yajnasaini. Again, retelling the Mahabharata from Draupadi's perspective. And then we have another novel that many um, South Asian Americans might be familiar with, The Palace of Illusions, which was written in 2008, again, with Draupadi as protagonist. And she's comparing... You know, again, there's three modern novels all about Draupadi that's so different from each other. And then the penultimate essay is about caste in modern Mahabharatas. These retellings of the Mahabharata that the author is looking at are about retellings that are often showing low caste and untouchable characters in a very positive way, but they're also being written by upper caste authors who have quite a bit of privilege. And so what happens when these stories are retold by members of communities that they're not necessarily being represented in the stories? And in the conclusion, we talk about, she talks about our wonderful author, Sucheta, she talks about how characters like Eklavya, who's I think one of the most controversial figures in the Mahabharata tradition, right? He cuts off his thumb because his teacher says so. And just because he doesn't want someone to compete with Arjuna, who is already, in his mind, the best archer. And, and this is a boy, a prince from a tribal community who has taught himself archery just by looking at an image of Drona he made. And so it's, it's complicated. Nell and I were just having a conversation with a, a scholar we both really admire who was telling us uh, about one of his friends who was trying to break up uh, a protest that was happening at a university in India. And the students were protesting. And when this teacher went and broke up the protest, they were like, Dronacharya. They used it as an insult. Like, look at this teacher who's trying to stop us from doing what we want, you know, or fighting for what's right. And so it, it's just a super fascinating essay. And then the final essay 
is about this trilogy of graphic novels that retell the Mahabharata, but do so in a way that's really drawing on the original Star Wars trilogy, which is so cool and interesting especially for a big mega Star Wars fan like me. Um, so it's just just the diversity of the different kinds of retellings in that final section. Like, What does it mean to be a modern Mahabharata? You get five super different answers or, or six different answers. I can't even remember how many essays I've just described, but it's it's fascinating. It's just, um, and, and Nell and I were constantly talking, oh my goodness, we left out this Mahabharata we should have also talked about in the introduction. And and, and, and new Mahabharatas are constantly being published and produced and we're seeing them and we're like, ah, why didn't we put this in our introduction? But it's just, there's so many and it's, it's impossible to keep track. But I feel like one of the most, I mean, this is getting back to the sort of question of like, how did we curate these? And, and so many's point is making me want to highlight this, that one of the things that we had in mind was that we wanted to show that even though many, many modern Mahabharatas focus on sort of social justice issues in a very, of like, for example, gender or caste in a very self-conscious, um, intentional way, that these ways of looking at the Mahabharata are hardly new. There are essays about, for example, the relationship between the Mahabharata and gender and women characters and masculinity and all of this in every section of the book. And caste and the question of caste mixing, what does caste do, who gets hurt by the idea of caste, that appears in every section of the book, starting from the very beginning when we're talking about the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So that was, I think, one of the things that we really wanted to do was show that that even though we might think that sort of modern retellings of, you know, of the Mahabharata that, for example, bring out, you know, a character like Draupadi and tell things from her perspective are really special and wonderful in, in a sort of contemporary way that this is, that itself is hardly a new way of looking at the Mahabharata, right? It's just one that's more accessible and familiar to us now. But that is actually taking part in a much longer tradition that really begins with the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself. Yeah, and that's quite um, sort of revelatory, I think, for people who today are thinking that they have such an edgy kind of view or, you know, talking about Mahabharata and the context of what's happening in, you know, the Western world in 2021. But it's like very Mahabharata in spirit that even this critique has a backstory and that has a backstory. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's been one of the great things about working with the Novotman creators because, they they're doing exactly that they're like look we have this like really sort of contemporary critical gender aware cast aware eye here but how are they making that eye come to life by looking at the sanskrit mahabharata and other tellings of the mahabharata they're they're drawing on these really early sources from the Sanskrit Mahabharata to the Tamil, early Tamil Mahabharatas that Sohini has been sharing with them and drawing on early sources to make a really contemporary vision come to life. And you're so right, nothing could be more true to the Mahabharata um, than really leaning into that, into that backstory. about Nell and Sohini's book, Many Mahabharatas, or order your hard copy by visiting the website of the State University of New York. The book is also available online via Google Books or Amazon Kindle. Stay tuned for a South Asian edition of the book, 
which will also be published in Delhi. Navatman is a performing arts organization that empowers individuals to nurture their personal evolution through interactions with the Indian classical arts, and that creates a home for the Indian classical performing arts in New York City. Navatman's Mahabharata production, which blends various arts, live theater, and film, is dedicated to portraying new interpretations of the ancient story. Navatman and its Mahabharata project are entirely community funded, so please donate and join us at www.navatman.org to sustain the Indian classical arts into the future. Uh...